Welcome to Word on the Street, a weekly podcast from Barclays UK, where our experts help ordinary investors make sense of the latest news and events impacting the world's financial markets. In this episode, we discuss the growing worries that there will be no bounce back in the global economy, with Phil Attreed, Head of Investment Consulting, Rob Smith, Head of Behavioural Finance, and Will Hobbs, Chief Investment Officer. Hello and welcome to another edition of Word on the Street. Uh, Usually I'd welcome you back from the long weekend, but the blurring of the time boundaries that usually separate work from weekends and from term time from holiday, uh, well, they may be a little less relevant than normal, I guess. Uh, We hope that you and your families are as safe and sound uh, as current circumstances are permitting. I'm Phil Attry, Barclays Head of Investment Consulting, and for this episode we have Will Hobbs, our Chief Investment Officer, and Rob Smith, our behavioural finance guru, to take you through some of the latest developments. Now, there continues to be a a lot going on. Um, That's a bit of an understatement. A veritable blizzard, I suppose, of of news flow. Rob, when it comes to navigating uh, the current situation, particularly in a, a modern age of instant and uninterrupted news flow, as individuals and investors, what can we draw from your behavioural experience to help us through this? Hi, Phil. Um... I guess the first thing to, to really talk about is, is, as you say, the amount of information that we have around us and how kind of overwhelming that can be. Now, I don't want to jump on a bandwagon and, and be a social media basher, especially as I'm a millennial after all, so I should be uh, enjoying that sort of technology. But it can be a useful tool. However, it does mean that the opinions of people who we would never previously have access to opinions of, and, and possibly rightly so, can now find us very easily. Um, now, helpfully, we've developed mental kind of rules of thumb known as heuristics to help us kind of process this amount of information and actually try and um, form our own judgments. However, as investors, some of these subconscious shortcuts can leave us at the folly of, of, of um, some biases uh, when we try and form our opinions. Now, while it's impossible to try and cover you know, everything that might be within that topic uh, on a call like this, you know, just two things to really briefly point out. Firstly is storytelling. So it's established, it is well established, I should say, how important storytelling is as part of our communication as a species. And, you know, we love to create stories out of pieces of information, even if there isn't necessarily uh, one there, and it helps satisfy our need for less uncertainty in, in the world around us. Now, this narrative fallacy, as it's often called, means that compelling tales, however factually correct they are, um, will often outweigh any kind of robust factual um, arguments. The other thing is, is being able to realistically assess our own competence is, is hugely important. Um, and whilst that mouse may seem obvious, um, when you look at kind of how we are at, at being able to understand you know, the, the limits of our own uh, abilities, uh, it seems that we've got some way to go. And so it's easiest observed through the belief that we're often better than the average at many different things. So if you take a survey of, of people's opinions on how good they are at driving, for instance, it's a very popular one, compared to the average, you find that something like 90% of people believe that they're better than the average uh, driver, which obviously statistically cannot be right. You know, there has to be uh, 50% of the population who are worse than average and 50% that are better. And another manifestation of our ability to to fool ourselves, if you like, is is something known as the Dunning-Kruger effect, where people with less competence on a subject tend to have um, a worse 
um, sort of ability to assess their own um, their own competence compared to those who have more knowledge. So put simply, what that means is the more uh, we know about a subject, the more we realise that the amount of information to, to know is much greater and therefore we perceive our actual knowledge uh, to not necessarily be as significant as, as those who perhaps have uh, a little bit less competence on a subject. And so with, with those last points in, in mind, is should I be therefore quite reassured by the seemingly, I don't know, modest or humble, I think Will refers to, uh, ability to sort of forecast and make predictions that, that and, and those sort of forecasts that we see coming out of our investment team is that something I should be reassured by? So I guess the the, the short answer is yes. Uh, so you know what I've mentioned tells us that we need to be really mindful of our own possible shortcomings when trying to form uh, our beliefs and our opinions, um, and that we should try and rate ourselves very honestly and openly as, as decision makers as we go through that process. So it's very important to have a strong decision-making process, as we believe we, we do, uh, one that is grounded in some behavioural um, theory as well, which forces you to do this. Now, the upside to this is that you can mitigate some of the potential biases that might creep into decision-making otherwise. However, the downside is in times where there is as much uncertainty around as there is today, you tend to end up with less conviction about any one particular future. So, you know, it doesn't mean that we don't necessarily have a view, but it means that the views we are very honest about the fact that the confidence we have in those views is not as strong as it may have been otherwise. And there are many potential future uh, or many potential futures that, that could play out from here. Um, and I think the Dunning-Kruger effect that I mentioned before often means we should be wary of those who shout loudest with confidence in, in specific predictions of future outcomes. And will, as you mentioned, along with some very... Um, other, some other very respected investors, as mentioned many times before, humility is often more important than intellect for successful long-term investors. Quite, Rob. And I know we've talked before about how you work very closely uh, with the team in that decision-making process as well. And and we have seen them act um, you know, through, through this period of, of market turmoil. Well, turning to yourself, we had a, a busy weekend on the news flow front. So Hopefully, some potential good news uh, around treatment, um, some pretty interesting scenes around the world of oil production, and of course, a bountiful uh, the bountiful data uh, on the spread of the coronavirus and what we might see from an exit. So let's just start off with the, the OPEC plus negotiations. You, you mentioned last week that a deal between Saudi and Russia was thought by most to, to be pretty unlikely. Where does the weekend's agreement sit and, and where's that gotten us to? Yeah, Phil. I mean, there's 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 no uh, no part of the world's capital markets that um, require more of that uh, humility. Rob refers to than the commodity complex. To be honest, uh, it was a pretty amazing weekend in truth. Um, but I think the point we were making um, last week was that even if Russia and Saudi Arabia did manage to agree to cut supply, this was still going to be a very oversupplied oil market. Now, the price reaction to the news of a massive deal in the oil pact was instructive. Uh, even in the face of a massive agreement to cut supply by literally four times, uh, this, this agreement was literally four times larger in terms of the millions of barrels of oil that will be theoretically denied to markets. Um, even then, the previous record, that's, uh, so it's four times bigger than the previous record that was cut back in uh, 2008. Even in the face of all of that, you found that prices for crude oil drifted on the day of the news, uh, and indeed since. Um, the coronavirus basically is taking such a massive bite out of fossil fuel demand that even with this historic supply cut, um, 
out of the uh, 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 that uh, uh, the supply cut of the size just described, you may still find that you are running out of room to store all your excess supply of oil in coming months. Now, that is not a great um, uh, auger for oil prices in the short term, uh, even if it should, they should brighten uh, as the prospects for a bounce in physical demand uh, nears towards the end of the year. Of course, and, and therein lies the problem. You've got to store it somewhere. Um, turning to coronavirus and, and, and the news that we saw over the weekend, are there any useful points that we can draw on there, particularly around uh, sort of thoughts of exiting uh, lockdowns? Yeah, so Phil, I mean, I think the sense here is that containment works, um, and that is certainly that sense is certainly growing. Uh, Italy is now one month into its strict, uh, you know, countrywide lockdown, and you are seeing reported new cases and fatalities start to peak and plateau, which is good news. Um, the outbreak in places like like Germany, France and Spain and the UK, um, they all seem to be tracking um, the kind of outbreak um, that we've seen in Italy, uh, but with a bit of a lag. Um, however, I think the point for us, and again, this is a, a, a point of humility, we still have to acknowledge that we're still very much in the dark uh, until we get materially ramped up uh, testing data. There is a sense that the current statistics we are getting on actual cases is really just glimpsing um, glimpsing the iceberg. Um, now, that doesn't have to be all doom and gloom if you think about it. If you are just glimpsing a small proportion of the number of infections, uh, then it may suggest, and this is what some are suggesting out there, um, that we're further along this out break um, than feared. Um, in the UK, though, uh, we're still really a week or so from being able to talk um, you know, about the success of containment. Um, we just need more data. Uh, but actually, uh, you know, on this, I think those daily uh, press conferences are very, very useful uh, material for those looking, uh, looking to sort of get, uh, get an edge here. Quite. And, and I think we saw some reasonable data on the effectiveness of one of the antiviral uh, treatments currently being put through its paces. Does that changed the range of probable outcomes um, that you and the team have been talking about? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's still very, uh, very early days. Um, but this, uh, you're referring to, of course, Remdesivir, um, an antiviral drug from a company called um, Gilead. Now, um, this drug had been off the dance floor, um, actually, as it had been trialed, uh, it was trialed unsuccessfully against um, Ebola. But it does seem to be showing up a little better here. Um, the results um, we saw ahead of the weekend they're the first um, of several uh, clinical trials that are ongoing at the moment that are really kind of putting um, remdesivir through its paces at the moment. We should hear more in coming um, weeks. Now, if all the tests showed up positive and it was kind of you know very seen as a very effective um, treatment, it will not fire the all clear. This is not a vaccine. However, if it does show some signs of reducing the severity and fatality of this disease, it would significantly or could significantly reduce the strain um, on healthcare capacity, among um, among other things. We're not there yet, like I say, but successful antiviral or treatments or wider treatments um, are certainly helpful in illustrating that we should be wary of automatically defaulting to the bleakest uh, kind of six to 12 month outflow, uh, the outlooks that are currently darkening our um, our news feeds. And, and Rob, again, with your work uh, with the asset allocation team, and I know you've spoken a, a fair bit internally about the challenges that we face when we're trying to assess a range of probabilities, especially when it, it, it's not an everyday event, an everyday topic. Um, can you explain the, the challenges uh, for our listeners? Uh, yes, of course. And I think you know Will has spoken a lot previously about uh, uh, as a team are challenge to try and understand you know what all the possible future scenarios could be and and, and which ones are more likely than others and in, in doing that you create you know, a, a, what we'd like to think of a robust picture of 
what the likely ways kind of forward are, and then how you can position yourself based on on those uh, possible futures. Now, by their very nature, the scenarios towards the extreme ends of the many possible futures that that could play out, which, by the way, will have a very small likelihood of actually occurring, will have huge and significant ramifications and consequences, both in terms of uh, for sort of public health and for, for people's um, uh, livelihoods and, and also the economy. So what we know from looking at the way that we try to um, understand uncertain events is that we tend to overestimate the chances of these rare events. And it's, you know, there are lots of reasons to sit behind that. One of the, the, the biggest culprits is it's very easy to think back to when was the last crisis? Oh, if it's economic, then we think about, you know, the great financial crisis, we think about, you know, disease, then maybe we think back to kind of Ebola or even before that, you know, Spanish flu and all these sorts of events that very easily uh, spring to mind. And therefore, we have a false view, if you like, that, that potentially they're, they're more likely to occur than they are. But we also tend to overweight, even if we could, you know, get the likelihood of these events occurring um, correct, uh, then we tend to overweight these small probabilities in terms of the impact that they're actually going to have on, on decisions. So one good example here is lotteries. So everyone, not everyone, but, but it's well accepted that you have a very, very small chance of winning a lottery. It doesn't mean that people don't partake in that because of the, the small probability. Uh, what's interesting is that different parts of the brain actually sort of, when you look at um, brain scans light up and are activated when evaluating these sorts of events. And it's positive, it's by, by no means uh, you know, a full, full conclusion, but it's positive that the separate parts may process uh, the actual likelihood, so i.e. Um, sort of how, how the low chance of this event happening, and then another area will actually process the sort of consequences of uh, that event. Um, and so the extreme consequences of, let's say, from an economic perspective, a full-on depression are pretty vivid, and thus they may create an outsized influence in, in one area of the brain that kind of then swamps the part that's actually processing the likelihood of these events occurring. And so it means that we end up with a with a, uh, a, a, a twisted view, if you like, of those small um, possibility events playing out. And when we're trying to make a decision of what the future might look like, that ends up meaning that we automatically kind of jump down towards the more extreme kind of outcomes. So, Rob, staying, staying with you, this situation's far from over. Uh, and, you know, we're very likely to see much more virus-related news and data. We've talked about data uh, and, you know, likely bad data coming. How do we prepare ourselves for this, um, particularly over the next couple of weeks or so? Also, is it possible to increase our chances of being better forecasters? So... I think following on from what I was talking about before, the first thing I'd highlight is around probabilistic thinking. So one of the biggest features, if you like, of people who seem to be pretty good at trying to um, bring together all the available information and, and make a, a good assessment of what the future could look like is is not oversimplifying the future. You know, we know that, that it's not black and white. Um, you know, there are various, as we talked about, there are very, various many different scenarios that could play out. And it's understanding which of those are more likely than others and an ability to kind of bring that together into understanding what, therefore, you know, what is the range that is most likely to occur and, and how can we use that going forward. Um, I think then, as we talked about right at the beginning about social media, it's important to 
try and take our information from trusted sources. Uh, so not dwell too much on opinions of others that, that may not be grounded in, in uh, enlightened facts. And I know that Will has mentioned in, in the past some previous, um, in previous editions, some good sources of information that, that him and, and others in the team use uh, in order to ensure that they're getting as much factual information as they can. I think following on from that, something that we call confirmation bias, which is a very strong um, ability we have to find only information that seems to support the uh, opinions we have and very easily dismiss uh, the information that doesn't necessarily support uh, those opinions. And so we need to be wary, wary of that when we're selecting what we're kind of reading and how we're processing information and make sure that we're always sort of challenging the, the views and the opinions we have. I think that leads on to my last point, which is about something we often call open-mindedness, uh, specifically about how we think and how we form opinions. Something that is, funnily enough, politically always seen as very damaging is, is changing your mind and, and changing the way the views you have on a, on a subject. But the reality is that there is nothing weak, if you like, about changing your mind, especially uh, in the face of new information. And actually, it's a trait of people who tend to be much better at processing uh, information and, and making good uh, judgments about, about the future is being able to, when faced with that new information, change their course of direction. Now, it's, it's not necessarily easy to do that because you know, it questions the very heart of the beliefs we hold and depending on what it is you're thinking about, some of those beliefs can be very much more deep-seated than others. But it's, it's important to be able to you know, know our own uh, weaknesses and limitations and therefore be happy to, to change course as a result. Thanks, Rob. Some good insights in there. Um, well, coming back to yourself, and, and again, on, on that data point, I suppose, we're starting to know a little bit more about the economic effects uh, of the situation as, as every day passes. Um, I know it's a small strand of activity, but I did see an interesting statistic earlier on uh, around Heathrow Airport um, and, and their sort of forecast for passenger demand, I think it was down about 90% um, for April uh, was their expectation. This is um, far from the only eye-catching piece of data that we've seen, isn't it? Yeah, and that's right, Phil. And, and we've spoken about this a bit before, but the situation is really unprecedented or pretty unprecedented, I think. Um, you know, this is a self-imposed downturn. So huge chunks of the world economy are effectively, as we talked about before, uh, kind of being put to sleep by policymakers in order to facilitate that fight against the uh, uh, this latest coronavirus. Now, in that context, some of the numbers generated by the world economy, like you say, are already pretty staggering, uh, you know, even in the context of the last kind of mega recession. However, in our opinion, the recovery should look quite different from other um, recoveries, in our opinion. Uh, like we've said before, where most recessions come about to kind of correct imbalances that have been built up uh, over long um, long periods. You can think about recessions as some kind of particularly uh, strict headmaster that comes along to kind of iron out our, uh, uh, our misbehaviour. Uh, and the same is true of recessions in the economy. But this kind of admittedly massive economic blow has come out of the blue and hit a more or less healthy economy. Now, providing the government's efforts around the world, um, efforts by governments around the world, uh, to keep the various shuttered parts of the global economy on life as support, providing they are successful, then a rapid recovery towards the end of the year uh, over the course of, uh, and over the course of 2021 uh, is still to us probably the most likely scenario. 
And so what would we say uh, about those or for, uh, to those who are sort of banning around the sort of term depression or, or prospect of dis- depression? Yeah. And, and as Rob alluded to earlier, you know, this can this can come pretty vivid to us at times like this. Uh, and the big case study here is obviously the 1930s. Now, uh, studying that uh, depression, that period in the world's history, it's a life's work. Um, so we should be careful of kind of trite uh, oversimplifications as to the causes of that uh, multi-year slump uh, and the similarities between this one and that one. Um, but certainly uh, what we can say is that policymakers are seen, with the benefit of hindsight, uh, at that time to have made significant errors. Some of these errors are of inaction, some are of action. Um, but what we can say for this time is that policymakers seem to have learnt the lessons from both uh, this episode and indeed more recent crises. Um, There are obviously um, things that are out of policymakers' hands, but the vigorous and incredibly swift action from governments and central banks, combined with some evidence from Asia um, that large parts of the economy can operate, a little precariously admittedly, but they can operate in the absence of uh, the vaccine uh, we expect in 12 to 18 months' time. Those are the most important context points, I think, at the moment. Is it fair to say, though, that maybe the the, the European package in particular, which will be in in some people's minds, has so far been a little disappointing? Yeah, I mean, there's a few people pointing this out. Um, It was certainly important, um, very important, that they managed to agree a deal in the first place. Uh, So that was one thing that in the the positives column. In the negatives column, it's not massive, um, but the reality, I think, that the the major problem with it is, if there is a problem, is that it's not about the size of the firepower in the package that's a little bit disappointing, it's the distribution of that firepower. Now, as we know, Europe has not yet managed to solve the incredibly thorny issue uh, of how to more explicitly share the economic burden of fighting this virus. Uh, It may still come. Um, but at the moment, uh, the kind of Eurogroup agreement settles for kind of beefing up the European Investment Bank uh, and something called the European Stability Mechanism, a kind of crisis fighting uh, uh, tool. There may be more measures yet, like I say, um, but it's really kind of mutually guaranteed euro debt uh, that would be the huge game changer for the euro project. And, and, and as JP predicted last week on the, uh, the podcast, podcast, we're not quite there yet. Okay, uh, I know everyone's sort of looking at the exit strategy. We've mentioned it several times. You've mentioned it on the call last week. Um, what's the latest there? Asia in particular sort of remains ahead of the curve. It, it does, is that still a success story for others to follow in the, in the coming weeks and months? Yeah, I mean, there's some some cause for encouragement there, like you'd say. But, uh, you know, I think for the sort of lesson for the West and uh, much of the rest of the world, really, is that need to sort of significantly beef up testing capabilities uh, and indeed the capacity for contact tracing. Uh, You know, uh, the idea that if I have the disease, uh, I am able, the authorities are very quickly able to trace everyone I've gone near in order so they can be sort of, you know, quarantined uh, in relatively short order. Now, you are finding in Singapore and in Japan that the kind of sparks of the disease's international spread continue to splash online. Now, this is keeping them on land. This is keeping them very busy uh, and has even seen some community spread unrelated to imported cases. Um, uh, you can get to some semblance of back to some semblance of normality without a vaccine, but it's hard work. Uh, and Singapore and Japan may be about to illustrate the risks of a secondary uh, outbreak. On the more positive side, you're seeing Korea and Taiwan. Uh, they remain pretty stable still in terms of their ability to contain. So th- there is a bit of good news, but it's it's you know it's it's measured. Uh, you know there is the, it's not unbridled good news. Let's say. Right and. 
I mean, it, it's caught my attention, sort of how differently um, different countries uh, and, and, and different sort of geographic areas have handled all elements of it. To what degree do you think cultural factors are playing a part in, in the sort of very different experience of the virus across the different um, countries and, and continents? It's interesting. and Like you, I've seen quite a few... Um articles kind of citing cultural um, differences as a reason for why there is a sort of different quality of response. So Asian people tend to be better at obeying orders than, say, Italians. That uh, seems to be sort of, you know, the tone of these articles. Uh, personally, I'm not convinced by such explanations. Um, you know, Korean and Taiwanese um, people have spent decades resisting authoritarian regimes in the post-war period over the last century. Uh, so I'm not sure we could label these um, populations kind of instinctively quiescent necessarily. Um, however, um, I think these are countries with impressive state capacity. Um, so, you know, Singapore, Taiwan, Korea are all sort of very famous for the degree of their state capacity. And where you've got polled trust in institutions is currently high uh, relative to many other places around the world amongst the population. Um, now, that trust can take decades to build, but it can be very helpful in moments where you need the population to change behaviours for a period of time uh, or put up with a degree of some sort of privations uh, with a high degree of compliance. Um, interestingly, just as an aside, there are a few commentators uh, that are, that have found some correlation between the quality of crisis response uh, so far and the gender of their leader, i.e. female leadership is currently correlated with a superior uh, institutional response. Uh, there may be some, uh, we don't want to muddle correlation and causation here. Uh, we'll talk about this a little bit more with Nikki, uh, uh, the, the boss, on uh, on the, the, the podcast later in the week. Absolutely. And, and thank you both. Some very useful insights uh, again. And thank you, as always, our listeners, for joining us for this Word on the Street special. We hope you'll be able to join us again at the end of the week, as Will says, uh, for our next edition. All investments can fall as well as rise in value, and their past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance. This podcast is not a personal investment recommendation.